0: In the first half of our show, we're going to be talking about the struggle for abortion rights. On Saturday, rallies for abortion rights uh, were held in scores of cities and towns across the country that drew a total of hundreds of thousands of participants. Here in New York, there were major rallies at both Union Square and Brooklyn's Cadman Plaza. We have uh, two fascinating guests who will join us in a few moments. But first, Amba, you have some sound to share from Saturday's rally at Cadman Plaza
1: that's right i do there were tens of thousands of people there on hand and uh the people i spoke with had some strong opinions about this this looming demise of uh rights to abortion looming demise of roe v wade so let's go to that clip here voices from the protest
2: in the time that i grew up just before roe versus way became uh, 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 law of the land uh, a number of women, and all these women that I know were uh, black women. They um, they resorted to different things to get to have an abortion. Uh, one person died because she tried to abort within the eighth month. I knew of people who would wear girdles to try to hide being pregnant and ended up creating problems for their the child when it was born. They didn't want to have it and when they went into labor, they were by themselves because they didn't want anyone to know they were pregnant. So. Uh, The child ended up dying. The unfortunate thing is those things happened and they didn't have to even then because there were procedures that could have helped them. But they just were not legal. So keeping Roe versus Wade legal makes it a lot easier for women to make just decisions about what they want to do knowing they have choices we shouldn't be having this conversation 50 years later i mean it's just ridiculous um, it was settled People were fine with it, and we cannot allow a minority to speak for the majority. I think the reason why I decided to bring a bat today, even though I know nonviolent resistance is more effective, is that I wanted to express how angry I am. I wanted to have a visual representation of how absolutely incensed I feel because I feel like I really want to fight and I want people to know that women are going to fight physically we're pissed so you know they called down the thunder well now they got it I've had two it was legal and it saved my life I would have ended up very different person with much less safe options so i'll forever be thankful i'm here today at this rally for abortion rights Um, my son and i made this sign that says mamas are always right which is something i teach him at home Um, the way i explained it to him today was that um, i said to him well what's the most important job in the world and he said being a mama And I said, well, some bad men want to make it so that mamas can't choose when to be mamas. And that's not right. And he understood that. And so that's why I brought him here today. I mean, you know, I was pro-choice before I got pregnant. And I'm even more pro-choice now. This is the hardest job in the world. And the idea of having to do it against your will is, it's unconscionable.
0: Those were voices from Saturday's. Abortion rights protest at Cadman Plaza. Uh, tens of thousands of people, uh, joined that and, and, and later marched over the Brooklyn Bridge to Foley Square. Uh, Amba, any more thoughts on your part about Saturday's rally and, and what you saw and, and, and thought while you were there?
1: Oh, well, there's a lot of thoughts, but I'll try and be concise. Um, I think from my own perspective, being a uh, uh, fertile, uh, I don't know, I mean, of reproductive age. <laughs> Luckily, I I don't know. Um, But yeah, like for myself, you know, I'm like, why the hell am I out here? I only have so much time outside of my work and my life to go to protest and to hit the streets. And honestly, frankly, I want to be in the streets for something more radical than abortion. You know, it's really it's really annoying that I have to be out there, you know, um, fighting for something that is really basic, so that's one thing and I think a lot of people feel the same way uh, you know, younger women younger people uh, of reproductive age and then also older people who were went through the first fight, you know and uh, that wasn't the only older woman who lived through pre-Roe versus Wade who I spoke with who was just incensed and, and I think the other thing is just, you know it's not just about our right to our bodies and why is this happening, this is happening because the Supreme Court is an extreme extremely undemocratic, unrepresentative structure that has a lot of sway in American politics. And maybe for a while there was relative unbiased, but now with the um extreme polarization, I I, I hate to say polarization because really it feels like everyone's, you know, somewhat of a, a centrist. Um but but with the extreme Democrat versus Republican nature of the current uh you know national politics, it's 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 uh, it's made the Supreme court even less democratic and even less representative than it ever was. And it's, we should be really, really mad that the Supreme court can decide anything for us. Um, Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, Well, I I mean, I won't say much more than just that uh, (laughs) men should be 100% uh, unconditionally supporting all women and all the choices they make. And I can't believe that anybody would, especially any man would see it differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and so I think with that, um, you know, I'll leave the rest of the talking to our guests. So here to introduce them, we're gonna have two amazing guests um, that will help us better understand the struggle that we're in right now for a, a childbearing person's right to control their body, a woman's right to control her body. And um, we are gonna be joined by Melanie McLennan, who currently works as an addiction doctor here for the New York City Health System. But until around 2008, she was an abortion doctor and she performed abortions in North Carolina. South Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, you know, uh other than North Carolina, all states that are going to lose abortion when when Alito's decision becomes official. And she was just 18 years old when Roe was decided and and is furious about what's happening now. We will also be joined by journalist and documentary filmmaker Aaron Sheridan, and Aaron has been a contributing writer for the Indy since 2018. She covered abortion defense activism when she was based here in New York City, but she is currently based in Boise, Idaho, where abortion rights are definitely in dire threat. So welcome both of you to WBAI. Hi, Amba. And Aaron, we'll get to you shortly, but first we're going to start with Melanie. So Melanie, veteran abortion doctor, uh, what is just your reaction to, to the decision or the leaked, the leaked decision and, and Saturday's protests?
3: Regarding the decision, I'm not surprised, but I was trying to be hopeful. Um, you know, it's fundamentalism is a direction the country's going in. It's very useful for controlling people. It's very useful for getting people to, um, support things against their own interests, especially in times of economic hardship. It's not historically unusual, but, um, I think it's, uh, going to put such a pressure especially of course on poor people and women of color that um, we're going to have ERs full again of people in sepsis and dying regarding Saturday's um, protest I went to Union Square which was really nice for the historical part of it Union Square has always been the radical place for protests, and that felt really good. It wasn't as big as the one you went to, but it was really diverse, like every age, every color. It was I really um, noticed that and loved it. The one thing I didn't love about it, although there were some really good speakers, especially um, a Dominican woman who's a reproductive health justice activist, was that people kept on mentioning um, white men and sort of vilifying them. And I think that that's now a stand-in. You know, um, it certainly was always white men, but, you know, we shouldn't forget Clarence Thomas and <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and, you know, um, these sorts of uh, beliefs are not just restricted to white men. Otherwise, you know, we could just have women running everything and it'd be fine. So that was a little bit upsetting. And there were a lot of white men in, in, the, um, in the protest and I actually felt for them. <laughs> so that was interesting little different from the way I felt uh, a while ago.
0: Right. And and speaking of a while ago, can you tell us more about your experiences as working as an abortion doctor in the South?
3: So by the time I was working, it wasn't so bad. But the person, the doctor who taught me, who's right now in Jackson, Mississippi, at the abortion clinic there for what he is afraid may be the last time. Um, he was on, uh, he, he taught me how to do abortions. I'm a family practice doctor by specialty. I, um, there is no specialty in abortion. And so he trained me and he was, he was really vilified. His, his family home in Tennessee was protested really rabidly. Um, before I came along, he was also on the list that the husband of the OB doc who used to do abortions and then recanted the website that that guy put up that had blood you know uh the people's names and addresses doctors names and addresses listed with blood dripping down over their names or x'd out if they'd been killed so he had a hard time i did not have as hard a time at all i um,
1: Are you- I had to f- talk about walking into work, having people protesting every day, like maybe you're numb to that. But talk about that and talk about some of the more surprising people who you or others gave abortions to.
3: I'll do that. So um, I worked mostly in Charlotte, North Carolina, and every day driving into the parking lot there, there was a tall blonde woman who looked a little like me, who in a white coat, Who very, was smiling with a pen in her pocket and was stopping people, which would have meant that their cars were in the road. So that happened. They photographed my license plate. They got, they had somebody in the anti-abortion movement there who worked for General Motors and they could get, um, personal information by having a car license plate numbers. So, um, let's see. So at a later time, um, they came to protest at, Let's see how to do this. They came to my house, went into my house and left a note for me there. Come to God. And um, I had to call a cop who was more scared than I was and said, listen, you know, you're going to have to do a little search of this house. It was a big old house because, you know, these people have been in my house. So this guy was so bloody scared, a big, huge guy. It was a shame. I felt badly for him. You know, and we're poking around. we go through the first two floors it's okay, but the basement's a hell of a mess, and he's poking around looking for packages, which is years before that when I had roommates when I first started doing abortions, I had to tell my roommate that they or anybody staying at my house that they were not to touch a package if there came if one came to my door by any means at all because they had put that package with all those nails outside the abortion clinic in um I think it was Mississippi and that the off-duty cop and the nurse who came to open the clinic, he poked it and she had 19 surgeries and still doesn't walk properly or see well. So that was a kind of odd thing. And my response to it really in the end was, I mean, I was doing family practice a couple of days a week and abortions a couple of days a week. And my response was just, I'd introduce myself and I'd say, hi, I'm an abortion doctor. I'm sorry if you don't like it. The stigma really, even with legal Abortion was so apparent for so many of the women. You know, we did not, we used, we did not, in New York, they put people to sleep. We were not putting people to sleep. And so they got a lot of counseling and that was excellent. But they would often be very scared. I had one woman when I first started out who was, um, had been a protester at this clinic. And she was eight weeks pregnant. And she said that she had thrown herself down the stairs already and walked into a frozen pond and that she had a one year old and didn't want to be pregnant. And it was a very, very, very unusual thing doing an abortion on this person. Um, it was, it was difficult and all the owners of all the abortion clinics that I knew that were part of the national coalition of abortion providers. They, every single one of them said to me that they had done abortions for the wives or daughters or actual protesters that were outside their clinics. Um, what else happened that wasn't so good? In, I worked at Little Rock in Arkansas, and there was a bomb threat. And everybody had to go out of the building, which means that people were in hospital gowns, you know, coming out of the building and having to wait in the parking lot, which was an open parking lot. I believe I felt more vulnerable for the patients and for myself then than I kind of ever had. Um, And, you know, it, it was not exactly a good experience for the patients. And it was very scary for the staff. It was just not a very good thing. And here's the other thing that used to happen. I've just remembered this is, I don't know whether you remember the anthrax scare, Mm -hmm. but they were sending around envelopes to the anti-abortion people were sending around envelopes to abortion clinics and you'd open them and they'd have white powder in them. So abort- many abortion clinics treat for chlamydia um, afterwards with Cipro, which is the medicine for anthrax. So as I'm working one day, they said, Doc, listen, we just opened an envelope and it had white powder. And I said, go in the back to the nurse. Let's get some Cipro. And as long as you didn't snort the damn stuff, close it up and you'll be fine. And what they were doing in other clinics who reported this was they were making pe- everybody come out into the parking lot. They were practicing by setting up their decontamination tents, making the CEO, you know, the head, the, per- the women who owned the clinics get naked and get sprayed. This was practice completely different from what they did when the Congress got answers, by the way.
0: Right. And just so, so our, those our-
3: were some of the more salient, crazy things that happened.
0: Right. And just for our listeners who may not remember, the anthrax scare was in the fall of 2001, shortly after 9-11. Um, and uh, so these uh, anti-abortion groups were taking advantage of the public uh, fear and apprehension around anthrax to uh, also harass and terrorize abortion providers. Uh, um, Melanie, uh, can you tell us a little you, you were a young woman when Roe versus Wade was decided. Uh, can you tell us? Uh, what you re- remember about the pre-Roe days and, and also uh, what was the impact, uh, I guess, in your mind and your perception of of being a, a woman in American society when Roe was decided in favor of the right to choose?
3: I'm only going to be able to answer part of that well. I, all my friends in high, when I was in high school, all my friends were two and three years older than me. And at that time we had moved to a farm in South Jersey in the middle of nowhere, pretty much, from Brooklyn. So someone had found out about a doctor in Philadelphia, which was about an hour away, who provided birth control pills. And seven of us went to Philadelphia and got birth control pills from this remarkable little, um, tiny little woman, Austrian-Jewish woman, whose husband saw um, psychology patients in the other side of their their little house in, in Philadelphia. She did what progressive family practice and OBGYNs are just starting to do, which is providing birth control pills to women without vaginal exams beforehand. All seven of us were in the room. I was sitting on the floor. She patted me on the head. And so I had birth control pills before I needed them. And I kept them in my top drawer and I knew how to use them. And pretty much we made sure that everybody could get birth control pills. A friend of mine in Alabama, they kind of had done the same thing because, thank God, birth control pills were available and were legal. And this, mind you, is, you know, um, the time of free love as a result of the birth control pills. There was one young woman who was a friend of my younger brother's who, at about the age of 15, had gotten pregnant, having gone out with one of the uh, more popular older guys in high school and gotten pregnant. And I have this memory of her walking down this street towards this small lake that was there. And she must have been about four or five months pregnant and her parents had thrown her out as a fifteen year old. You know, just thrown her out. So as far as I was concerned, Roe v. Wade was normal and supposed to happen and it went along with birth control pills and this is what we were you know, this is what we were going to do and this should be possible.
1: And Melanie, if you if you don't mind, uh, you know, you've you've had a couple abortions. Just talk about that and what it meant to have the choice. So my first
3: abortion, I was a third year medical student and um, I called up a friend of mine who had gotten pregnant regardless of any birth control she'd ever used, even double. She'd have an IUD. She'd have the pill depot. It didn't matter. She got pregnant. So I called her up and she put me in touch with a group of women who were doing something called menstrual extraction, which was happening around the country. And what they did was practice with, you can use a soft tube to enter the cervix and a a kind of large syringe. And they basically extracted menses monthly, practicing on each other very carefully and with a lot of studying of what the cervix looked like at what time in the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So I had my first abortion done at home. Unfortunately, it was a little bit past seven weeks, so there was a little bit left over. So I proceeded to have like kind of every experience you could have for the first abortion. And about three days later, I was still, of course, going to medical school and in the psych rotation. And I had 104 fever and they wanted to take me to the operating room. However, I'd done some studies and, and, you know, I knew for a fact that in the early days when they, when OBGYNs were using sharp curettage to do abortions, which they were used to doing for much further along pregnancies and full term deliveries that where something remained, some product of conception remained, there was a lot more blood loss and it was a lot more difficult. So I went home, stopped taking Advil and promptly passed a little teeny weeny piece of something or another and was fine with antibiotics. The second time I was an intern and I can remember standing up and falling asleep talking to my attendings. I thought that I was probably going to be thrown out of that program. That day, luckily, um, in the emergency room, a woman came in who'd had an abortion a couple of weeks prior and I asked her where she went. And I happened to be in Eastern North Carolina at that time and the clinic. Was about three and a half hours away. So one Saturday morning, I went there, got an abortion, came back, and um, kept working in the ER that night. So those were my two abortions.
0: Right, and uh, th- thank you for for sharing this. And I I want to w- also bring in our other uh, our other guest, uh, Aaron Sheridan in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Aaron, are, are you there? I'm here. Great to have you with us. So I understand. Uh, Boise had one of his largest protests in uh, recent memory uh, on Sunday uh, about uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, can you describe a little bit what that was like?
4: Yeah. So I, you know, live about five minutes from uh, the state capitol in downtown Boise. And it was, I believe, Saturday morning. The rally was held. It was called Bands Off Our Bodies. And it was held by. Planned Parenthood, the ACLU of Idaho, add the words Idaho, and some other groups in solidarity with other rallies that took place across the United States. I have been in Idaho since February of 2021, and there have been a number of protests that I covered as a reporter when I was at the Idaho press. And the most people that I ever saw at a demonstration was probably no more than 200. And I showed up expecting to see maybe 100 to 200 people and to my surprise there were um thousands i mean it was a sea of people in downtown i have never seen so many people in one place in idaho this is a state that does not have a very large population it's a state where um it is challenging and potentially even discouraged to speak out against injustice um it, it and the, the i think planned parenthood estimated 5000 people Um, and it was people of all ages. It was people of all backgrounds. It was people of a variety of demographics, a lot more older women than I'm used to seeing at protests. Um, I saw people in wheelchairs. I saw people of different skin colors. I saw people who were, um, of different gender identities. It, it, um, it was a very diverse, um, expression of, you know, we're not going to let you do this. And Aaron, um, you know, talk a little bit about
1: what kind of anti-choice laws are being prepared right now in Idaho.
4: You know, that kind yes. Of- so well, let me give you a quick history of abortion in Idaho because it is um, bleak, <laughs> for lack of better words. Um, right now, you can still get abortions in Idaho, both the pill and the procedure, um, but at limited locations. There are. Three Planned Parenthood's in the state. Two are in the Boise area. One is in uh, Twin Falls, which is in southern Idaho. Um, meaning that actually in all of North Idaho, there is not a single Planned Parenthood where you can go to get an abortion. In the Boise area, there are there's two the two Planned Parenthood's, and then there's one I believe private clinic where you can go and get um, the pill and the procedure. And I think that the longest. Uh, you can be pregnant is up to 15 weeks at all of those three clinics. Um, Some of them will only give you the pill up to 10 weeks or um, we'll do the procedure up to 13 weeks. It really depends. Um, So in Idaho in the 2000s, they passed a law that banned abortion after 22 weeks because the legislators felt that uh, fetuses can feel pain. Um, obviously, was not based in science. Um, in 2008, then the state became one of over 20 states that uh, put informed consent restrictions into effect. So minors in Idaho have to get consent from a parent before they can have an abortion. Uh, women have to receive counseling that includes a lot of graphic information uh, designed to discourage them from having abortions. And then they have to wait 24 hours before the procedure is provided. Um, public funding is not available for abortions unless, uh, there's life endangerment, uh, rape or incest involved. Um, and then Idaho also has trap regulations that aim to restrict the, so those, they aim to restrict the provision of abortion services to hospitals and other specialized facilities. They require doctors to obtain really medically unnecessary licenses. Um, in Idaho, all second trimester abortion services have to be provided in a hospital. I was reading that Nayrol actually argues that that is unconstitutional under a Supreme Court decision that was made in 1983. (laughs) Um, Idaho law also requires that providers have satisfactory, quote-unquote, transfer agreements with one or more acute care hospitals within reasonable proximity, and there's no exception for clinics in rural areas, which is most of the state, um, or if local hospitals will not agree to said transfer agreements. Uh, then, as of now, um, abortion will be outright banned in Idaho when Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, abortions can only be performed right now before fetal viability, which most experts estimate is 24 weeks. Um, And then only if the patient's life is endangered. Um, Another restriction now is uh, that we have a trigger law. Um, It's Senate Bill 1385. It passed the legislature in 2020. It will take effect 30 days after Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, And this is about, I believe, one of 13 laws on the books in states across the country that are similar. It makes it a felony to perform abortions or to attempt to perform an abortion um, with a prison sentence of a minimum of two years for the medical professional who performs the abortion. Um, they could, after a second offense, have their, uh, medical license permanently revoked. Um, there are fines for self-induced abortions. Um, I do believe that women under the, under that new law will be able to get charged, um, for, uh, having an abortion and going through with it. Uh, although I would have to double check that the, uh, trigger law, does include uh, exceptions in the case of rape and incest, but only if the person has previously reported the rape or incest to law enforcement and has provided a copy of that report to the phys- physician performing uh, the abortion. So we know that a lot of survivors of sexual assault and abuse do not report until much later. And so this is just another barrier to a basic medical procedure. Um, And then in April of this year, Idaho passed, um, sorry, of last year, Idaho passed the Fetal Heartbeat Protection Act. It was House Bill 366. It bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. Um, That will also go into effect 30 days uh, after the state is legally able to ban abortion if Roe vs. Wade is overturned. And then uh, this March, Idaho uh, was the first state to pass a copycat abortion ban modeled after Texas's Senate Bill 8. Um, so Texas's laws, we know, blocks abortion by avoiding judicial review, um, by allowing anybody, anyone to sue abortion providers or others who help them access abortion after the fetal cardiac activity has been detected, which is um, roughly six weeks into pregnancy. And that's before most women can usually confirm that they're pregnant or have time to access care. Um, uh, let's see. SB 1309 is what Idaho's bill is called. And. Um, let's see well, here. Just,
0: uh, just to jump in here for a moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you tell us anything, you know, about, uh, a proposed law that would forbid pregnant women from leaving the state of Idaho for an abortion, uh, and also the, the presence of, uh, pro-choice Oregon, uh, being just an hour from Boise, uh, yeah. what, what kind of, uh, sort of surveillance state, uh, are, are the, the anti-choicers, uh, uh, looking to erect here to keep women from leaving the state?
4: That's a good question. I know that there has been discussion about that. I do not think that anything has been proposed yet. Um, I do know that across the border, Oregon, um, Ontario, Oregon, is preparing for an influx of Idaho patients. I read an article that uh, Planned Parenthood has rented uh, office space to begin providing abortions there. I think although Oregon does not have restrictions um, on abortion access, there aren't many clinics uh, east of the Cascades. And so this in Ontario will be probably the only place where people in Idaho, um, in the Boise area, are able to go to access abortions. Um, Washington, I read the, the Guttmacher Institute um Uh, released a statistic. They said that 385%, they're expecting a 385% increase in patients from Idaho seeking abortions, um, if the ban goes into effect. And, uh, yeah, the other issue is that, um, you know, Idahoans could travel to surrounding states. So there's Washington, Montana, Oregon, Wyoming, and Utah. Um, but some of those states already have trigger bans in place. I think Wyoming and Utah do. And then, um, States like Montana, um, research organizations like the Guttmacher Institute expect them to potentially ban abortion after Roe is overturned, just based upon political climate.
1: And and Aaron, you know, talk a little bit about the context there in, in Idaho um, and the the th- your thoughts on Christo fascism and the various kinds of <sighs> in Idaho and how it um, relates to this.
4: Yeah. So um, I do what I do in Idaho right now is that I actually work at a homeless shelter and um, all all of these issues I'm starting to realize are intertwined. It's all related to a rise in white supremacy nationally. But Idaho, I've heard referred to before as the canary in the American political coal mine, because it all it seems to be kind of amplified here. Um, the idea, I think, is to force people into situations that they cannot get out of. You know, while you siphon up all of the wealth and power that you can and then keep people who aren't like you subjugated um, in Idaho, a lot of these abortion bans have been the result of um, what is now called. We have a nonprofit called the Idaho Family Policy Center that is related to these national nonprofits of a similar vein um, that are their purpose is to educate church members about how they can get involved in public policy issues. They host things like biblical activism boot camps, um, where they teach people about the biblical justifications um, for becoming involved in politics and um, advancing uh, Judeo-Christian values through legislation. Um, you know, <laughs> our, our politicians have all jumped onto that v- rhetoric in a variety of ways. Uh, Janice McGeehan, who is one of the candidates running for governor, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, actually said this month, um, quote, God calls us to pick up the sword and fight and Christ will reign in the state of Idaho. I mean, that is the thing that is underpinning all of these policies Um, you know, whether it is uh, bans on providing gender affirming care to uh, young trans people or yeah, I could think of a number of different of different, laws or issues or policies that are that are happening in the same way it's like you want you want to force people into a corner because they're not white christian cis men and they don't fit into this system um and we are
1: we are uh we are running short on time here and so we're going to pivot back uh to melanie and just ask you each a final question um melanie and and you know a last minute Uh, just what are your plans uh, going forward to support women who need an abortion and how do you think that's going to look in New York in general? Well, I think
3: New Yorkers are preparing. I mean, I had a surgeon text me today and say, you know, okay, so are you credentialed in doing abortions because we had spoken before? And um, I mean, you know, there are a couple of different ways to do abortions. One is by disrupting the body hormonally, which is what Plan B is, but what what also a whole lot of birth control pills are. And the other is by disrupting the pregnancy, which is what Mifepristone is. And people are doctors for the last year and a half have been mailing Mifepristone to people. There's a large contingency of family practice doctors who do reproductive health care. So I guess what I would do now is do start doing funding projects that Figure out ways to purchase and store mifepristone and Plan B, and if it's you, might as well as store Depo Provera also because that is also a you know at least a longer acting um, birth control. IUDs are also able to be used as emergency contraception. So I would figure out a way to get all these things funded. You know, the, the the things themselves are not illegal at the moment; it's just using them. As a matter of fact, a heartbeat isn't a heartbeat until someone plunks an ultrasound on a belly. So, interestingly enough, you are not pregnant until a doctor says you're pregnant. So, you can't be pregnant if you don't if you've never seen a doctor. So, you can do things.
1: Okay, thank you so much Melanie and and Aaron. Now you last question uh 30 seconds. What what are your plans going forward in Idaho and how can we follow you?
4: We need to listen to women and people <laughs> who are on the ground, who know about these things, who know about the fallout that these decisions are going to have on bodies. Um, and we need to what? organize and support each other. And how can we follow you, Aaron? You can follow me on uh, Twitter. My handle is Aaron underscore Sheridan. And that's E-R-I-N underscore
1: S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N. Melanie McClellan, abortion doctor, Aaron, Sher- former abortion doctor, Aaron Sheridan, indie writer out of Idaho, right now out of Boise. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will be back shortly after this music break. Thank you.